interrupt your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues. I'm your host, Don Watkins. This is our first episode, so I wanted to explain just a little bit what the aim of this podcast is. As we'll be discussing with our guests today, the welfare state has put us on a course of unsustainable debt, and the bill is going to land at the feet of young Americans. This is what I call welfare gate, because it truly is a scandal, and it's uh, one that young people are going to be paying for with their hopes and dreams. Yet, most don't know anything about it, and even fewer know what to do about it. So the purpose of this podcast is to educate you about the crisis in the welfare state and teach you how to fight for a better, freer America. So let's get started. Our guest today is Lawrence Kotikoff, a professor of economics at Boston University. He's the author and co-author of many books, but the one I want to recommend at the outset is called The Clash of Generations, co-authored with Scott Burns, which covers many of the issues I want to talk about today. Larry, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. Thanks very much for having me. So let's start small. What's the government's official debt? It's about $12 trillion in the hands of the public. The, uh, the Treasury borrows a lot of money. It takes in dollars and hands back IOUs, which are called Treasury bills and bonds. And then the Federal Reserve prints up a lot of fresh dollars and goes and buys back some of those bonds and bills, Treasury bonds and bills that have just been purchased by the public. It goes back to the public and buys them right back. So a lot of the uh, treasury bills and bonds are sitting inside the Federal Reserve, but uh, we economists basically focus on uh, what's left that the public is holding uh, that uh, the government has to pay interest and principal on, has to repay, and that's about $12 trillion. But in your in your book and your other work, you argue that this is, I mean, this is basically a phony or meaningless number, and that the number we should really be paying attention to is the fiscal gap. So what does that gap mean? Uh, the fiscal gap is uh, trying to put all the liabilities, all the obligations onto the books. The government is really free to decide what is, uh, what's an official liability and what's not. So... Um, you know, it comes to uh, John Smith, the taxpayer, government Uncle Sam comes and grabs some money from him, and uh, then it goes and spends the money on maybe uh, buying a tank, let's say. Now, the government could call that money that it took from the John borrowing, or it could say that it's taxing John. If it uses the first word, borrowing, then uh, there's an obligation that's put onto the books because the government hands back a treasury bill or a bond and that becomes part of the official debt. If the government takes the money from John and if Uncle Sam takes the money from John to buy the tank and uh, calls it taxes that he's taking from John, but then promises John a big benefit when he's old, like a big social security payment uh, or a big health care payment, then that obligation isn't on the books, even though it's there. And in many ways, it's more real because the elderly have very strong power to enforce 
the promises the government's made to them when they were young. So we have a lot of promises. We get a lot of money being taken from Uncle Sam for whatever reason to, and for whatever immediate purpose Uncle Sam needs to get money for, whether it's to buy a tank or to pay for Social Security benefits for the current elderly or to uh, put a missile out into outer space, uh, you know, some kind of spacecraft. But what it calls the money it takes in is arbitrary. And if it uses one set of words, we have a lot of debt on the books. If it uses another set of words, we have very little debt on the books. The way the government, uh, Congress, and administrations have been using language since uh, the post-war, uh, in the post-war period, is to put as little debt on the books as possible and to leave all the, the vast majority of our obligations off the books. So the fiscal gap puts everything on the books. doesn't let government put anything, leave anything off the books. It takes a look at all the expenditures that the government is committed to make. Some of those include repaying principal plus interest on official debt, on the $12 trillion in official debt. But there's obligations to pay my 94-year-old mom her Social Security benefits uh, and her Medicare benefits. Uh, there's obligations to pay the Supreme Court justices their salaries to have some minimal defense through time. Uh, there's all kinds of obligations, and they're all included in the fiscal gap because we look at all the expenditures that are projected to occur, and we form the value and the present of those expenditures, and we compare the present value of those projected expenditures with the present value, the value and the present of all the projected taxes. So the fiscal gap is a net concept. It's the, it's the bills that we have to pay net of the taxes we're going to be getting in, in the future, all valued in the present. And the fiscal gap today is value, is measured at about $205 trillion. So the value of the fiscal gap, the size of the fiscal gap in the U.S. today is $205 trillion. The official debt, as I've said, is $12 trillion. So we've got a forest and a bush. The forest is the fiscal gap. That's the true measure of our liabilities as a country, as a government uh, of the United States. The official debt is $12 trillion. So you can see how well Congress administrations have been able to hide uh, the true obligations that are being left to uh, younger people and future generations. Now, to give you an idea of how big the $25 trillion number is, it's 10.3% of GDP on an ongoing basis. That's to say forever. If you wanted to come up with $25 trillion uh, every, you know, in present value and you're going to try and do that in a smooth way, take a fixed share of GDP every year, such that the present value of that fixed share of GDP was $205 trillion. Well, that share would have to be 10.3% of GDP. It's a, uh, it's a huge amount. We'd have to raise taxes by 57%, all federal taxes immediately and permanently to come up with 10.3% of GDP every year forever. Or we could cut all spending by about 37% immediately and permanently. All my mom's social security benefits, the list your listeners, grandparents' benefits, uh, everything the government pays for the federal government, all the agricultural subsidies, uh, paying for the president's lunch, gassing up Air Force One, uh, everything would have to be cut immediately and permanently by 37%. This is giving an idea of how broke we are as a country. So that 57% tax increase, is that assuming that there would be no negative effects of that tax increase on the amount of revenue yeah, of the government? Yeah, that's actually optimistic because it's assuming that 
it wouldn't be, you know, that people would continue to work and earn money as they're projected to do, but it could well lead, pe- lead people to leave the country. So it may be very hard to collect an additional 10.3% of GDP from the American worker and uh, from older people. So, uh, and by the way, these numbers I'm giving you are coming, uh, well, they're my, pre- my calculations, but they're based on the Congressional Budget Office's projections. So these are non these are pretty non controversial numbers, right? But I, I mean, there are people who object in various ways, right? But it's not to the to the numbers you're using. Well, the concept of the fiscal gap is something that uh, the vast majority of economists, uh, as far as I can tell, support, and there's some evidence for this because if you or the, the listener would go to www.theinformact.org, t h e i n f o r m ACT, one word, theinformact.org. Uh, you'll see a website where there's a bill that's now in front of Congress. It's a bipartisan bill that requires CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, the General Accountability Office, the GAO, and OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, all three of these agencies of our government to do fiscal gap accounting on a routine basis. And this uh, bill has been endorsed, as you'll see on this website, by over a thousand economists, including, uh, if you look at the uh, affiliations of these economists, we're talking about people from the very top economics departments in the, in the country, MIT, Harvard, Stanford, Chicago, and there's 15 Nobel Prize winners listed among the 1,000 plus economists. These uh, Nobel Prize winners include Ken Narrow, who's probably the top economist alive, maybe the second best economist of all time after Paul Samuelson. Just, uh, if, if there were just one name on the entire list, which was Ken Arrow's name, that would be enough. And to, to say, here's what we need to do, folks. So all these people are endorsing fiscal gap analysis, and yet uh, none of the agencies of government are doing it, and including the Congressional Budget Office, which is run by a, an economist. Uh, or a list, an alleged economist. But um, so we're trying to get this bill through Congress, and uh, we could use all the help we can. Anybody who can get access to a Democratic senator or Republican senator, they need to lobby hard to get the Inform Act passed because we need Congress to be able to, to face the fact of what they're, and the administration, of what they're leaving to our children. This is not a right-wing versus left-wing issue. Uh, you'll see, if you know the economists who uh, endorse this bill, you'll, you'd see that there are people on the right and the left, very strongly on the left, very strongly on the right, who are endorsing this bill, and then a lot of other people quite in the middle. So it's totally nonpartisan, saying the economics profession, saying with one voice, uh, in effect, look, uh, we can't lie about the government's obligations. We have to put everything on the books and stop lying Washington. And I've never seen anything like this. You've never, we've never seen 15 Nobel Prize winners endorse any single piece of legislation. You, know, you could, could conceive of maybe three or four doing this, but to have 15 Nobel Prize winners in economics do this, it's just amazing. So what's driving the fiscal gap? Well, the aging of the population, we have 78 million baby boomers who are... Uh, about to collect a lot of benefits now. Uh, the government has arranged things so that 
when people reach old age, the government provides them with pretty high benefits in the form of Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid benefits. And they are going to, on average, equal $40,000 per baby boomer when the baby boomers are fully retired in about 15, 20 years. They'll be getting, in today's dollars, $40,000 per head. That'll be about 85% of per capita GDP. That's output per person. So uh, if we average all of output uh, in a country, um, it's about you know $50,000 per person right now. If we average, you know, if you take the total output of the country GDP, which is of course domestic product, divided by the number of people in the country, which is about 310 or so million, you get to, to a number of about $50,000. So we're talking about $40,000 per old person being paid in the form of these three benefits on average. And in about 15, 20 years, the GDP per capita will be about 55,000. So it's 40,000 versus 55,000. But anyway, if you're paying $40,000 to 78 million baby boomers, that's over $3 trillion a year in today's dollars. That's a huge obligation that uh, uh, is facing the country that we've known is coming and that nobody has taken any – nobody's dealt, dealt with. None of the Congresses, they've always pushed it off, and this administration and Congress are no different. They haven't dealt with fixing Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid. Uh, the uh, reforms of our health care system, the uh, Obamacare or Obamacare, as I like to put it, uh, they are, that's also an extremely, ex- potentially explosively expensive uh, health care system, the way it was structured. I, I firmly believe everybody needs a health plan uh, provided by the government, but not one that we don't need to have a, a health care system that has different systems for different types of people that each of which is, can drive the country broke and is driving a country broke. So there's that. There's defense spending. The fact that taxes as a share of GDP are quite low and projected to stay low uh, relative to the spending. And uh, and there's also you know concern about how productive the next this generation of young people will be. Uh, can they find jobs? Can they earn uh, high wages, can they pay significant amounts of taxes? Or have they been educated enough, well enough coming into the labor force? Or are they being uh, replaced by smart machines of all kinds? Yeah, I so, want to come back to how that affects young people, but I mean, I think one of the numbers you mentioned is just really astonishing, which is that we're, we're on a on a path that's going to lead to each retiree, let's say, getting $40,000 per capita. But another number that you mention in your book is that at that time, given the changing demographics of the country, there's only going to be two workers per retiree to support them. I mean, that breaks down, if, if unless I'm not understanding the math, into basically, on average, each worker is going to be responsible for $20,000 per retiree. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the fact that the country's aging, per se, is not uh, a bad thing. Uh, Normally, you would expect each generation to take care of itself. But what happened is, starting in the early 50s and continuing for every decade thereafter, we've allowed each generation of old people to take resources from the young people. And call it taxes and 
hand it to themselves and allow them to increase their consumption, their spending, and the consumption of the elderly has shot up dramatically relative to the young people, pathetic young people. And uh, they've taken these resources uh, and said to the young people, look, when you're old, you'll get your opportunity to expropriate your kids. So this is like a chain letter. They sold a promise. Uh, they required young people to pay for a chain letter, for a letter, uh, an IOU or whatever, uh, that the young people then are going to turn around and hand over to the next set of young people. And when there aren't enough young people coming along, as there aren't, you see this Ponzi scheme or chain letter uh, just blows up. And that's what we're in the process of seeing. We, and uh, I've been predicting this for 40 years. So I'm writing about this. Uh, yeah, I mean, the previous generations in that scheme, I mean, they were making out, they would take in significantly more in benefits than, than they paid in taxes on net. But I, I, if I recall a number in a recent paper you put out, the current generation of young people will be basically in the whole several hundred thousand dollars over the course of their life. Is that right? Yeah, the the, uh, the baby boomers will basically break even. Earlier generations uh, did much better than break even, and younger people will, will be left carrying, holding the bag, and there aren't enough younger people to hold that bag. The bills are too big. We're going to bankrupt uh, the country is bankrupt, and that means uh, we, we can't force this bill onto our kids because it's too big for them to handle. Just like in Detroit today, that city is bankrupt because the remaining taxpayers don't earn enough money to be able to cover all the uh, promises that the Detroit governments over the years have made to their civil servants. So now you have older retired Policemen and firemen and teachers and so forth. Uh, the teachers are part of this, but let's just say fire, you know, civil servants there, city workers, who whose pensions are being cut, and that's the same kind of generational problem the baby boomers are going to face. We we think we're going to get paid these benefits, but they're going to be there's no way that we're going to get paid these benefits. It's going to be a total disaster and a generational fight like we haven't seen in the past. That's why uh, the first book I wrote with Scott Burns is called The Coming Generational Storm, and now this one is called The Clash of Generations, an update on that prior book. And the next book might be The Generational War, because, well, I mean, The Clash of Generations is pretty much talking about a generational war. And unfortunately, uh, the definition of, a, of an adult, to my eye, if somebody takes care of his kids, and that's not what we have running the country. We don't have adults in either party running the country. They're all leaving these problems for future generations, for future next the next next administration. Let them take care of it. We can't solve all the problems. Let them take care of the next this problem. Uh, that's the attitude, and they've allowed take as you go to continue to be played. Because every year that we don't address this problem. We leave a bigger bill. We let more and more older generations off the hook. They get to spend more and drop dead and leave and not have paid extra taxes to cover this problem. And therefore, there are fewer people left coming along to pay for it. So you get the point. It's not, it's not, it's like a 
credit card bill for the country, this $205 trillion fiscal gap, and every year that we don't pay interest on it, at least, uh, it gets bigger. Why can't we uh, just tax the, you know, the rich or the 1%? Well, there's not enough money in that. We can do that, but they're already paying a lot of the taxes. There's just not enough money there. You could tax them 100% of every dollar they earn. It still wouldn't be enough money to cover $205 trillion in present value. Plus, as you were suggesting, they would stop working and leave the country, and uh, and that wouldn't help us in terms of maintaining employment and economic progress. One of the problems you raise in the book that I think is um, even more frightening than what we've talked about so far is the effect of all this spending and the fiscal gap on savings. Now, can you talk about how this is affecting savings and what that means for the future? Well, when you take resources from young people and give them to old people, the old people can do either two, one of two things with that, uh, that money. They can either spend it on themselves or they could save it and give it back to their kids, either in the form of gifts or inheritances uh, and uh, requests, if you call it that. But they've done the first. They've consumed it. So what we've seen over the post-war period from 1950 through now is that our national saving rate has gone from about 15% of national income down to 2% last year. And at the same time, there's been a massive increase in consumption of the household sector as a share of national income. So that explains almost all the decline in national saving, the fact that the household sector, households in this country are consuming more. It's not the government. The government uh, is consuming so much more. Their share of, of consu- their consumption as a share of national income is not that much higher. So who within the household sector is consuming so much more? Well, if you look at that, it turns out it's the elderly. The consumption profile by age, the age consumption profile in 1950 or 60, it was pretty much hump-shaped curve. So as you, uh, you know, plotted consumption against age, that was a curve that went up. You know, consumption rose with age from being a child up to being about 45, 50, and then it declined. Today, it's a, it's a, if you plot that curve, it just continues rising. So that a seven-year-old used to consume less, maybe 30% less than a 40-year-old on average back in 1960. Today, the 7-year-old consumes about two and a half times what a 40-year-old consumes. So, or maybe two. It's uh, somewhere between two and two and a half times. So, you can see that uh, exactly what kind of selfish behavior would predict has happened. We've taken from the young, given from the old, the old have consumed it, and our state national saving has gone down because our national consumption has gone up uh, dramatically. And the result of our national saving going down is that our domestic investment rate has also gone up. Because if you don't save and you don't have any wherewithal to invest, so our investment rate was 15% of national income back in 1950, just like the saving rate. Today it's 4% of national income. So, and the difference between the four and the four percent of national income that's invested, and the two percent of national income that's being saved, is that foreigners are bringing some of their saving into the country, and that's making up the two percent differential. And that's uh, 
referred to as the current account deficit. So foreigners are investing in the U.S. because they see that Americans are not saving enough to invest in the U.S., and they see some decent opportunities for investing here. But, you know, this is exactly what our economic models predict, the life cycle models, saving. I and the Alan Auerbach, who's the Berkeley, developed a large-scale simulation model that uh, we're the first economists to be able to put onto a computer a model that was realistic in terms of people living for and up to uh, 80, 100 years and uh, had all the details of the fiscal policy and the aging, the demographics. So we were able to, to see how the economy would evolve through time based on the policies it was running. And the model predicts exactly what you see in the data, which is uh, the more we transfer to the elderly, the more they consume, the more the national saving rate falls, the more investment rate yet investment rate falls, and therefore successive generations end up coming into worlds into an economy with less and less capital than would otherwise have been the case, and therefore their real their wages they're not as productive, and therefore their wages don't grow as rapidly. And in the U.S., we've had almost a cessation of real wage growth since 19, in the 1960s, if you look at the take-home pay on average, the average weekly take-home pay in real dollars, in dollars adjusted for inflation, of today's workers compared to workers back in 1965, it's actually somewhat lower today than back in 1965. That's a statement that the American dream is, is a dream, a real dream, not, not a reality like it used to be, but just a fantasy. What's the reaction from young people when you talk about this problem? Well, uh, they're upset. I think they get it after a bit. They weren't aware of it. Nobody's been telling them about this. But then they're trying to figure out what to do. And uh, I would say there is something they can actually do at this point, which is get the Inform Act passed, which is go to www.theinformact.org, find their congressmen, find their senators, give them an email, she can call them, go down to Washington, make an appointment, uh, demand that their members of Congress pass the Inform Act. Because until we recognize this, the size of the generational expropriation, we're not going to really address, address it. Congress has been hiding facts. Uh, we've got an emperor here that's walking around naked, and uh, we're pretending he's well-dressed, and meanwhile he's about to to death, and until we realize, recognize that he's naked, we're not going to get any clothes on him. Uh, so that's, you know, you know the story of the emperor's new clothes. That's pretty much what we've got here. We've got everybody pretending that these deficit and debt numbers are actually meaningful measures of our fiscal situation when they're not. And I'm not the, fortunately, I'm no longer one of the few economists who are saying this publicly. I'm now, I've now got a thousand economists and more 16 Nobel Prize winners right with me saying the same thing. How can people follow your work? Uh, at Kotlikoff.net is a, a good place to go because that's my main website. And the purpleplans.org is a good place to go. I've got a new tax reform proposal called the Common Sense Tax. So the Common Sense Tax.org is another good website to look at. Uh, 
I'm doing some, I have a website called the Tax Analysis, taxanalysiscenter.org, ta- just no doubt, just taxanalysiscenter.org that I set up to do tax, tax studies. Uh, and, uh, again, the purpleplants.org is a good place to look. So, all those places are, uh, websites I've, I've put up. My guest today was Lawrence Kolokoff. Larry, thanks a lot. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. What should we take away from this episode? I would highlight one basic fact. The welfare state is exploiting young Americans on a massive scale, on such a massive scale that it simply is not sustainable. Now, Larry gave us a metric for this disaster, the fiscal gap. I refer to it as the debt draft because it is literally drafting young people into debt. Like the military draft, the debt draft treats the life of young people as the property of the state and they've been conscripted to finance their parents' and grandparents' retirement and health care needs, regardless of what impact this will have on their own goals and dreams. And as I think we've heard, the impact will be profound and potentially devastating. Don't think about this merely in vague terms of taxes going up or economic growth slowing down or something like that. What this means is that your own priorities, what you want out of life, will have to take a back seat to paying other people's bills. If nothing is done to end the debt draft, you're going to be forced to spend the majority of your days working not to build a life for yourself, but as a selfless servant of others. Now, where Larry and I part ways is in the solution to this mess. Larry mentioned his purple plans and their attempts really to preserve the welfare state but to stop it from bankrupting us. My view is I don't think the welfare state should be preserved. Think about what the welfare state does at its core. The welfare state takes money from the people who earned it and gives it to those who didn't earn it. Instead of a society that rewards productive achievement, the welfare state creates a society in which the more you achieve, the more you owe to others. The more successful you are, the more you'll be punished in order to reward the unsuccessful. That's the deepest injustice of the welfare state. It's inherently a system of exploitation. The exploitation doesn't consist in it just being expensive. It is a system of exploitation, even if it is, quote, affordable. Because in the final analysis, no one can afford to waste a minute of his life. You, me, all of us only have a limited amount of time on this earth. In my view, nothing can justify forcing us to spend a single, irreplaceable moment of that time on anything other than our own happiness. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.